Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome to the History of England, episode 324, Europe 12, Colonisation and War. Last time we reached the story of the Iberian Peninsula and the war with the Dutch Republic. So, the Dutch Republic seems like the perfect place to start this week, and it will also lead us into the continuing story of Europe and its growing colonisation outside Europe. We'll talk then about France, and also there'll be a war that lasts about 30 years, about which Zach will then give us more detail the following week. All of which is leaving mighty and glorious France horribly close to the end of our tour, but hey, as Malcolm Sargent once said, start with a bang and end with a bang and no one will care what you do in the middle. Or at least I thought Malcolm Sargent said that, but the various quote things on the intertubes didn't seem to attribute it anywhere. The only quote they had for Malcolm Sargent, was an utterly daft interview question he was asked, to what do you attribute your advanced age? To which Malcolm's response was, well, I suppose I must attribute it to the fact that I have not died. A reasonable answer. But the question, which probably still disturbs the sleep of the journalist who asked it, wins the most daft prize to this day. Anyway, we'll leave the glitter of France to later in the episode and until the glitter of the Dutch Republic. Now, when I were a lad, the 17th century was known as the Dutch Golden Age. Despite the almost constant pressure of war, the Dutch built a society of great prosperity, religious toleration and artistic endeavour that had the collective jaws of other European nations knocking gently on their toe caps. The reasons for it are a matter of some debate. And many and various they are too. It used to be said that Calvinism had something to do with it. A sort of story about super-careful and thrifty merchants making money and spending it very wisely and carefully and even meanly. But actually it's been noted that these supposedly thrifty and tight-fisted Calvinists parted like it was the end of a global pandemic on Brighton Beach, beautified their houses with all sorts of pricey artworks as well. This was an extraordinary period for all those Dutch paintings we love so much. Franz Hals, Rembrandt, Vermeer, any number of others. Patrons eagerly commissioned for their own houses as well as public spaces. It's been suggested that at least three million paintings were produced in the 17th century alone. An English traveller, Peter Mundy, commented with wonder that even houses of indifferent quality were filled with furniture and ornaments, very costly and curious, full of pleasure and home contentment, 
as rich cupboards and cabinets, imagery, porcelain, costly fine cages with birds. Furthermore, the wealth spread throughout society, not restricted to a wealthy elite. Bakers, farmers, blacksmiths, all kept artwork. It seems more likely, then, that economic and population changes were more influential than Calvinism, specifically. An increasing population promoted economic growth in one of Europe's most sophisticated, industrialised and well-capitalised societies, and religious toleration fuelled further growth. So, there was a mass movement of people from the Spanish-controlled Low Countries, so the cities like Ghent, Bruges and Antwerp suffered what has been called a catastrophic haemorrhage of inhabitants. Thousands of Jews emigrated from Spain and Portugal to the Republic and Huguenot from France. The same openness encouraged thinkers and writers like René Descartes and John Locke to set up shop there too. Now, I'm not suggesting that René and John brought so many pastries and buns that they single-handedly fuelled the Dutch Golden Age, just that the same spirit of toleration and openness brought immigrants to Dutch cities and those cities swelled with people and commerce. Amsterdam was a city of 50,000 souls in 1570 and 200,000 in 1700. Technology also played its part. New production processes improved manufacture and new financial arrangements fueled industry. And in the carrying trade, the Dutch innovated, producing new ships which handled better, carried more cargo and required fewer crew to operate and were therefore cheaper. The new ships, called flights, established one of the central planks of Dutch economic success in the rather prosaic herring trade, carried on routes between Iberia and the Baltic, with Baltic grain heading southwards too. The Dutch expansion into the carrying trade at once cut out the costs associated with using Spanish and Portuguese bottoms with all their fees, and added to Dutch profit too. They were also to provide the workhorses for the Dutch's very conscious expansion into colonial empire and world trade. As the philosopher and lawyer Hugo Grotius declared, the Dutch had to take destiny into their own hands. The Dutch colonial enterprise was a very conscious national effort and almost certainly did much to fund wealth and economic success. So, let's talk about that briefly before we get to France and warfare again. In 1602, the government created the Dutch East Indies Company, or VOC in Dutch, a single entity to lead trade into Asia, on the understanding that a single entity would be more powerful than competing merchants working alone. It's a good example of the way the Dutch did trade, generally pooling resources and risks across a wide body of investors, rather than operating monopolies, as commonly happened in England. There does, however, appear to be some debate about the first joint stock company, and often the VOC gets the crown. However, I think England's Muscovy Company in the 1550s was earlier. Maybe the difference is that the VOC was the first company to issue shares, but there doesn't really seem to be a solid answer, so maybe you could provide it. Anyway, the Dutch plan was not to trade alongside other nations and compete with them, such as did the Portuguese, Venetians and German traders in Goa, for example, each with their own factories in the same town. The plan was instead to replace 
their competitors. How they did that tended to vary. So in the Americas, the Dutch West India Company set out to colonise territories that had not yet been colonised by other European nations. In the Spice Islands, though, the isolated Portuguese communities were vulnerable and was expelled in 1605 as part of a systematic programme to establish control over the East Indies and the VOC established the base at Batavia, modern-day Jakarta. It was not just Europeans they targeted, but local authorities too. So they established control over Malacca, Colombo, Ceylon and Cochin, and then the Sultanate of Makassar in modern Indonesia in 1669. Slavery formed a central part in these settlements. It's been estimated that between one-third and two-thirds of the inhabitants of Dutch East Indies cities were enslaved people, mainly from South Asia before 1660. Many others were enforced labour, often from China. In West Africa, the Dutch pushed out their rivals. New bases were established and the Portuguese pushed out of many bases such as Almina on the Ghanaian coast. As a result, the Dutch dominated the gold trade and became heavily involved also in the slave trade. They were a powerful force in the Atlantic trade, although they eventually failed to maintain a presence in Brazil. By the 1640s, they had a presence along with the French, English and Danes in the Caribbean and owned a major share of transatlantic shipping and all but controlled the sugar trade. Even further afield, a Dutch navigator, Abdel Tasman, charted the outlines of Australia and New Zealand in 1642-3. Obviously, the Spanish and Portuguese empires continued to expand in the South Americas, while you will all know more than I do about the early arrival of Europeans into North America, beginning with the explorations of Jacques Cartier in 1534, grandly claiming territory for his king, as you do, in what would become New France, and then buzzing off to do a bit more exploring. The honour of the earliest permanent colonies in New France goes to either Port Royal or Quebec City, 1607 and 1608 respectively, both founded by Samuel de Champlain. And of course further south, we have the establishment of Jamestown in Virginia in 1607. Incidentally, in writing this short piece, I have rewritten history, which happens, you know, because in the first version I boobed and was corrected by Pierre, Michel and Olivier. Merci, messieurs. Since this is a topic of super importance to England, I will not dwell here on the culture of Native Americans or the arrival of the Pilgrim Fathers. We'll do it properly in its own episode. As you'll know, the English had established the Easter India Company in 1600, which would become a beast in the next century, but initially, and for many years, it struggled to compete against the Dutch and their presence forced the English to concentrate on India. There they tried without success to gain an imperial decree from the powerful Mughal rulers of India, granting them regular trading privilege throughout the Mughal Empire. They only managed a few specific privileges, such as in Mumbai, which were revoked in 1686 when the English tried force and only managed to continue trading by paying a heavy fine and prostrating themselves in front of the Mughal Emperor. France, like England, was a relatively slow starter in the process of colonisation, except in the Caribbean, 
and in 1663, Louis XIV brought all the endeavours in New France, in the North Americas, under royal control. And he saw new colonies in the Americas as a perfect scenario for absolutism. To establish colonies without all those annoying customs, liberties, guilds and all that sort of shenanigan. That will be for the future, but it brings us, I hope relatively neatly, to France, long awaited. France was very much on the up by the end of the reign of Henry IV, who had done such a superb job to end the religious wars. Together with his chief minister, the Duc de Sully, they worked to restore the French infrastructure, building bridges and highways, canals, planting forests. Sully was a famously hard worker, rising at four, having breakfast at 6.30, work till noon, stop for a fine lunch, obs, this is la France, après tout, and then work through until 10 at night. Henry's focus was very much to restore the wealth of his people. If God keeps me alive, I will ensure that no peasant in my kingdom will lack the means to have a chicken in the pot on Sundays. Nonetheless, they did not forget to beautify Paris either with the Palais of the Louvre and the Pont Neuf, which in common with all things called new, like the New Forest, for example, are in fact normally the oldest of things, and the Pont Neuf today is the oldest bridge in Paris. Sadly, a religious nutter decided Henry was not a proper Catholic and killed him when held up in traffic. Henry's son, Louis XIII, was but nine years old. So, his Italian mother, Maria de Medici, became regent, and immediately she rewarded her Italian chumps, in this case, Leonora Galligai and her husband, Concino Concini. They were not popular with the French, but when he technically came of age, Louis seems to have been happy to let them carry on until 1617. Louis XIII was an odd fish, deeply socially inept and terrified of women, and yet determined and politically confident. So when his best mate Charles d'Abre convinced him that the Concini were pants, he acted and acted firmly, and I may really mean firmly. Concini himself was assassinated, and three months later, Leonora was convicted of witchcraft, beheaded and burned at the stake, which is probably the right order if you're going to have to go in such a way. Louis' mum Marie was exiled to Blois, and Bézy Charles made Duke of Lune for his good advice. On Louis' death, Louis looked around and chose as his new chief minister a man who had been knocking around French politics for a while, Armand Duplessis, a cardinal since 1622. I speak, of course, of one of surely the most famous names in European politics, the Cardinal de Richelieu, made famous both by his achievements but also, let us admit it, by his presence in Alexandre Dumas and his Trois Muscatiers. Richelieu, as my one-time school friend Mark Shostak used to say, was robota, which he said meant the business in Polsky. But to be honest, Google Translate begs to differ now that I check it. There's a fab picture of the lad, that's Richelieu, not Mark Shostak, one of those three-in-one pictures and he was clearly an impressive man, commanding presence, hawk-like eyes, hooked and powerful nose. He radiated power and confidence. He was also an autocrat, and if Louis XIV was to be an absolute monarch, it was Richelieu who laid the foundations, metaphorically speaking, 
of Versailles. Richelieu was determined that the French nobility should be bent to the will of the king, and he extended the partnership started under Henry IV of creating nobles of the robe, raising money for the crown by creating new members of the nobility, selling them offices, charging them the paulette for the privilege, which was a tax on office holders. The ancient nobility, the noblesse d'épée, nobility of the sword, were unimpressed. Meanwhile, administration was to be centralised and the power of local parlement curtailed. He created a new class of royal officials, the intendants, appointed to govern and raise taxes in regions, appointed directly by the crown, alien to the province they were to rule. Their nobility must be worked hard. They must be likened to mules, which accustomed to their burdens are spoiled by long idleness rather than by labour. So, a tough boss. He also disapproved of the kind of freedoms given to the Huguenots with their separate fortified towns. Aha, I hear you say. Well, he was, after all, a cardinal of the church, so he can't have liked a prot. Well, it wasn't necessarily that. Richelieu was no hunter of heretics. What he insisted on, though, was that, like Elizabeth I, for example that they should be loyal to the king and the state, and he hated the idea of a state within a state. Duly then, Huguenot liberties were restricted, most notably in the case of the fair city of La Rochelle. Now, La Rochelle is a seaside town and a thoroughly lovely place to visit, especially the Ile de Ré, I might say. Sea sand, bicycles, that sort of thing. A croissant a day keeps the gut ticking over as well. But back in 1627, it was the most powerful of the Huguenot towns, with a reputation for resisting strong sieges, and which Richelieu strongly suspect of harbouring a potential rebellion. So, despite the rather embarrassingly feeble attempt of support from England's Duke of Buckingham, La Rochelle was invested, taken after 14 months siege, and once it fell, its walls were raised and the citizens forbidden to maintain their own arms, as had been promised them under the Edict of Nantes. It was to prove a slippery slope. Richelieu also carried with him that century-plus old fear of the Habsburgs. France was strongly convinced that it should be, as it had been once before, the leading nation of Christendom. And it had every right so to think. Prosperous, wealthy, large, 20 million inhabitants as opposed to 10 million in Spain and a mere poxy four in England. And yet, one barrier lay between France and the hegemony she desired, those blessed Habsburgs. Encircling Mother France from the south, the east with the German emperor, and to the north with the Spanish Netherlands. And it was this that persuaded Louis and Richelieu, to everyone's amazement, to take their Catholic nation to war on the side of the Protestant nations. Shock and, indeed, horror. Sacred blue. We'll hear more about that in a moment. But Richelieu died before the end of the Thirty Years' War and his boss Louis died a year later in 1643. This brought to the throne an even more famous Frenchman. Yep, even more famous than Thierry Henry, Louis XIV, the Sun King. Once again, though, Louis was just a little one, a Morris, a minor, when he came to the throne, and so once again this meant his mother Anne of Austria would be regent. 
and as her chief minister, she employed another famous name, and possibly maybe perhaps also her lover, Cardinal Mazarin, once more an Italian, although very different to Richelieu in style, but another very capable minister. He was also, I understand, a massive gambler. Like Anne and Richelieu, he was also a convinced absolutist, but in 1648 his unpopularity as a foreigner, a centralising autocrat and the weight of the taxation required to fight the Thirty Years' War, brought the maybe inevitable reaction in the form of rebellion. The Fronde were a series of rebellions between 1648 and 1653, and they are an odd lot, really. They were effectively civil wars that kind of rumbled on, traditionally divided into two phases, the Fronde Parlementaire and the Fronde des Princes. The name Fronde comes from the French for sling, you know, the sort of thing you'd use to bring, I don't know, Goliath down or chuck mad at politicians rather than the type of sling that you cradle your arm in. And frondeur is a short word for political rebel or activist to this day. The initial Barney started over a composite series of reasons. There's your political infighting and hatred of Mazarin and Anne of Austria. There's your resistance to the creeping absolutism thing against the growing primacy of royal decree over the Parlement. And then there's just good old taxation and economic distress of the ordinary folk. The trigger was Anne's removal of members of the Parlement of Paris when it tried to resist demands for extra taxation. It is important not to equate the French Parlement with the English Parliament, by the way. The French version was more like a court of appeal, not a legislative or representative body, but a body there to make sure French customs and liberties were protected. Anyway, Paris erupted in riots. There were mobs, barricades, the works. The Fronde des Princes, from 1650 to 1653, was much more elitist, political intrigue by royal princes and the high nobility sort of thing. In the end, it was a rather odd movement without a unifying aim or principle. Everyone just got sick of it in the end, put away their gilets jaunes, and it sort of all petered out. Now look, I think you might be interested to know more about the Fronde, and I have given you a rather rotten summary, but I just sit in space here. So there are a couple of things I'd like you to take away with you. Essentially, the powers of royalty butched it out in the end, and royal power was confirmed rather than limited. The other thing was the impact of all this on the young Louis XIV, a nine-year-old when it all kicked off. He saw the mob with his frightened little eyes. At one stage, he and the rest of the royal party were bundled out of the capital to flee to safer ground, to return eventually in triumph and chaos. Little Louis, just the sun nipper at this point, or the rising sun, I don't know, the rising candle, learned a lesson from all of this. He learned to distrust chaos and built a determination that the nobility must be controlled in whatever way that was required. And he learned to hate the mob and Paris in particular. So maybe here's where he started to draw pictures of massive palaces on his lace cuffs, massive palaces based just outside Paris, where the fury of the mob could not reach him. Soon after the Fronde, Louis took personal control of his reign and the rest is, well, you know, history. Well, it's all history, really. 
one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Now then, the Thirty Years' War then. I remember reading Robert Toombs' excellent book on the English and their history, and in it he talked about the English horror with the First World War and the determination never to forget it. Somehow the attitude towards it is very different to that towards the Second World War. Well, I realise this is possibly a little tangential, but I wonder if there was just a smidge of the same attitude towards the Thirty Years' War in Germany. From a world where warfare was pretty ubiquitous and, yes, frequently vicious, but to a degree relatively limited in scope, the Thirty Years' War suddenly seems like a vicious step up into hell. Vast, ill-disciplined armies storming all over Germany like murderous locusts, laying waste to everything before them, a wave of death, murder, rape, destruction and plague. Peter Frankopan, in his excellent book The Silk Roads, has a rather uncompromising view about the rise of the West, that it was laid on the back of violence and military technology, and that violence was formed in the never-ending, constantly self-perpetuating wars that racked Europe in the early modern period and beyond, on a scale quite out of proportion to that which had gone before. Other historians have made the point that many of the combatants took part because of fear, they fought to achieve peace and comprehensively demonstrated that war produces nothing except more war. It also comprehensively and definitively demonstrated that the people who suffer from war are you and me, ordinary people. Unless, of course, there are some world leaders listening in, of course, in which case, sorry and all that. The numbers are difficult, but it could be that the population of Germany fell from 21 million to 13 million it's a hideous number. The causes of the war are also constantly debated, but there are two biggies, really. On the one hand, you might argue that it was the third round in the religious wars, round one being the conflict leading up to the Peace of Augsburg in 1555, round two being religious wars leading to Henry IV's Edict of Nantes and the truce between Spain and the Dutch, and round three being this, the Thirty Years' War, until the Peace of Westphalia in 1648. This is a strong strand of historiography, but it has been increasingly poo-pooed in favour of a much more traditional dynastic conflict, at the heart of which was the continuing rivalry between France and the Habsburgs, which had caused so much death since Charles VIII invaded Milan, darling, in 1494. It's also been seen in the context of this idea about a general 17th century crisis or of the revolt of the peripheries against the assertion of central royal power, such as the emperors had constantly sought to establish over the German princes or the Castilians over the Dutch, Catalonians, Aragonese and Portuguese. I think the clever money, as always, is to meld elements of all of these and maybe also reflect that the mix 
and relative importance of motivations changed over time. So it doesn't do, it seems to me, to underestimate the importance of religion in this conflict. It provided the basic kindling material intentions leading up to the conflict. It provided the trigger in Prague. The rise of Calvinism, ignored in the Treaty of Augsburg, provided some of the grit that produced the poison pearl. For many ordinary people, they came to join in the wars to fight for their religion, in particular the Scots and English, who went to join the armies, and indeed the Irish. Though even in this, it's important to recognise that many went for the money and opportunities it presented. Anyway, a brief overview without losing my trousers. The war might really be described as lasting 47 years, starting at Donauwörth in an incident between German Lutherans and Catholics in 1606, leading to the formation of a Protestant League in Germany and consequently a Catholic League. You might think about the war as coming in a series of phases and the period of 1606-1618 is a sort of pre-phase when increasingly German princes prepared for war. The first phase then, focused on Bohemia, came in 1618-1623. The Austrian Habsburgs were as passionately Catholic as their Spanish branch. They had been shocked at the success of Protestantism in their ancestral lands in Austria and before the war kicked off, worked hard to reverse that. When Ferdinand II became King of Bohemia in 1617 and Holy Roman Emperor in 1619, he was to try and extend that policy throughout Germany. And of course, where better to start than Bohemia, the perfect place with its history of descent going back to Jan Hus and being predominantly Protestant. Bohemian nobles objected to Ferdinand closing Protestant churches and violating their charter of toleration and dealt with it in a traditional manner, namely by defenestrating his representative in 1618 in Prague, said representatives being saved from death by a dung heat or by the wings of a band of holy angels, depending on your viewpoint. Less traditionally, they removed Ferdinand as king and chose Frederick, the Protestant elector of the Palatinate of the Rhine, instead. Interestingly and sadly, they then found that support, which they had hoped for from their fellow princes, to be sadly lacking, and, outgunned and outnumbered, they were horribly and completely and comprehensively defeated at the Battle of White Mountain in 1620. In comprehensive revenge, the native nobility were completely suppressed and replaced by a Catholic nobility, and conversion started, and the tradition of Protestantism in Bohemia was on its way out. Frederick, or the Winter King as he was known, fled. His lands in the Palatinate were invaded too and seized by the Bavarians, Count Tilly pursued the Protestant army across the Germany and the devastation of Germany had begun. It was a complete victory and the prospect arose that maybe Germany could be the start of the reunification of Christendom under the Pope and the establishment of a strong and centralised Holy Roman Empire, the dream of Frederick Barbarossa and Frederick II Stupor Mundi roll credits. Obviously, this prospect, however, worried other people, and maybe they wished they'd been a little bit more supportive of their Bohemian brothers. 
The first to break ranks then was Lutheran Denmark and the Danish phase of 1625 to 1629 saw Christian IV intervene militarily with English, Dutch and, slightly shockingly, French subsidies. Enter Count Wallenstein twirling his evil moustached whiskers, the imperial general. He won a series of victories, took the fight all the way into northern Germany. And by now Spain had joined the fun and attacked once more into the United Provinces and more nations were involved in this widening conflict. The Danish phase was not a success for the Danes or indeed the Protestants. In 1629 the Danes slunk back to Denmark and victorious Ferdinand produced the Edict of Restitution ordering all Protestants to surrender all ecclesiastical land gained since Augsburg. All the Protestants were watching their walls get smothered with writing. Daniel was in the lion's den or Nebuchadnezzar's feast or whatever the correct biblical allusion is. And to stage right in phase three, 1630 to 1635, the Protestant champion, Gustavus Adolphus, king of Sweden and a bona fide military genius. Died quite quickly though when defeating Wallenstein at Lützen, but in two short years, the wars had been transformed. Count Tilly had been crushed in battle and the Swedes were preparing to advance on Vienna when Adolphus was killed at Lützen. Adolphus has, as I say, often been seen as a Protestant champion, but in that old dynastic versus religious argument is worth noting that Sweden was not the social democratic nation of the day we all love and revere. It was busy constructing a Baltic empire, very much threatened by the resurgence of imperial Germany. Just saying. Anyway, by 1634, Ferdinand, disillusioned and very weary now, was looking for peace with his German princes and he suspended the Edict of Restitution. Not until he had demanded Wallenstein, though, who was, I think it is fair to say, something of a loose cannon, to be brought in, dead or alive, and duly been assassinated by a group of Irish and Scottish officers. So maybe that would be it. But no, the imperial and Spanish fortunes were still too brightly shining for one remaining interested party. That would never do. And it might be said Calvinists were still excluded from any potential peace. So, to everyone's astonishment, France, whose official religion was of course Catholic, entered the war in support of the Protestant states and the war advanced in the Netherlands, on the Rhine and in Saxony. At Rocroix in 1643, another brilliant general, the Prince de Condé, won a crushing victory over the Spanish, which has sometimes been identified as the marker that the supremacy of the Spanish military was over at last. From 1644, diplomats were shuttling to and fro while the war wandered on. In 1648, in what was a series of treaties, the war officially came to an end. There were further disputes, though. The last Swedish soldiers didn't leave German soil until 1654. Before we move on to the political impact of the war, we should maybe think about those people that really paid the price. The thing about the soldiers wandering across Germany was that they could simply not be supplied effectively. Communications were awful, but the importance of logistics, that was the real military lesson of the war. So it's not that soldiers were necessarily always let loose on the population, 
although Wallenstein's army in particular were accused of great atrocities, and there were clearly many, it's more that armies brought with them plague. They brought displacement, villages crowding into cities where they could not be fed and were more vulnerable to plague. A couple of examples. Geoffrey Parker uses the village of Linden as an example. In 1634, 20 Swedish soldiers rode into the village looking for food. They broke into 13 cottages and raped Frau Roche and took what they wanted. The villagers struck back. They organised. They ambushed the soldiers and stripped them of their clothes, loot and horses. But the next day the soldiers returned with a constable and arrested four villagers. Shortly after, the village was listed as uninhabited. We know not why. Second example, sack was a legitimate part of warfare. Often towns and cities would manage to pay off the army before it happened. Other times it was the soldiery who paid with their lives and the people with their property, but not necessarily their lives. The rules of sack allowed for the plunder of a city that did not surrender. But sometimes things got out of hand. And the most infamous case of that was of Magdeburg. After two months of siege, the inhabitants of Magdeburg decided they should surrender, and they tried to inform Count Tilly, the imperial commander, but the note never reached him, and the city was carried by assault. The soldiery ran riot. Maybe 20,000 people were killed. The vast majority of the buildings were destroyed, and at the end of it, a mass was celebrated at the cathedral. C.V. Wedgwood, in her analysis of the war, claimed that it resolved nothing. That's not quite true, I don't think. It confirmed the effective end of the Holy Roman Empire and its potential to control a unified German state. The princes of the empire now controlled their own territories, independent of the emperor. Ferdinand, after an early first burst of success, was clearly the loser. The principle was re-established of cuius regio, cuius religio, now including Calvinism, so the ruler defined the religion of their state. The religion of many states was now finally established, Austria and Bohemia notably confirmed as Catholic countries now. The Pope, however, was livid. He denounced the Peace of Westphalia as null, void, invalid, iniquitous, unjust, damnable, reprobate, in aid and devoid of meaning for all time. Pope Innocent X would have had fun on social media. But of course, there was much to be wept over. Not only had the political powerlessness of the papacy been finally confirmed for all to see, but dead with it was the idea of the unity of Christendom, which had been such a central part of European life and experience, and which had died so hard and in such a welter of blood. France and Sweden had gained from the war. Sweden was now the most powerful state of Northern Europe and achieved its vision of a Baltic Empire for a while. France had advanced its borders to the Rhine. The Dutch Republic was fully recognised as an independent state, though actually its troubles were about to begin when Louis XIV got his teeth into their pants. And the Spanish decline was confirmed. Well, everyone, we've got to the end of most of our European bun fight. We just have one more episode to come when next week Zach Twamley joins me to talk about the hideous conflagration that was the Thirty Years' War. Until then, everyone, thank you so much for listening. 
for your reviews and comments, which I really appreciate. Good luck and see you all next week.